So, um, uh, we're continuing uh, today with a discussion from last week, which is on the five uh, hindrances. So we're slowly going through uh, this uh, uh, discourse by the Buddha called the Discourse on the Establishment of Mindfulness, the Foundations of Mindfulness. And uh, it's one of the very important discourses in our tradition. And it gives a whole series of exercises on developing mindfulness. And um, some of these exercises are integral to how we do Vipassana here or at Spirit Rock or IMS. And some of the exercises have kind of, you know, uh, marginalized by the tradition and modern traditions, not used that much. Um, but uh, much of Vipassana comes from this text. And there are four foundations of mindfulness, uh, four areas for developing mindfulness that's talked about. So there's the body is one area. The second area is the feeling tone of our experience. The third is the state of our minds. And the fourth, which is what we're on now, is called dhammas or dharmas. The word dharma is not so easy to translate into English because it has so many different meanings. I like to translate it sometimes as the knowables because it's just things the mind can know. And it can know a lot of things, right? So anything the mind can know is a dhamma, dharma. So it kind of almost doesn't mean much. But um, um, what happens, there's a kind of a shift here in the text when, when the exercises that come now in the, under this category. Prior to this, in a sense, most of the exercises are a little bit more um, uh, or at least the way we usually interpret a text is a little bit more um, uh, bare recognition of how things are, seeing how things are, seeing our body state. If we're, our body is, um, uh, feels pressure, we feel the pressure. If we feel it's unpleasant uh, pressure, we feel it as unpleasant pressure. If we feel um, annoyed by that pressure, we feel the mental state of annoyance that's there. And we just not, no judgment in recognizing what's there, but just a simple recognition of here, this is what's here. What happens now in this fourth foundation is that um, it's more than just simply recognizing what is happening. Certainly that's part of it. And now with the hindrances, recognizing the, the, the appearance of a hindrance when it's there and being non-judgmental about it. But there's also a quality of being, um, I think this is where my, where my uh, I don't know quite the right word, um, maybe analytical or perhaps um, some people call it a synthetic. Uh, kind of a synthesis is going on. And there's kind of a, a broader understanding of the patterns and the cause and effect relationship of some of the states that we're aware of that are arising within us. And in particular, in this fourth foundation of mindfulness, it's looking at those states that either uh, keep the mind in darkness or the, those states that help bring the, the mind into the light, into the light of awareness, into freedom. Those, those states that keep us in bondage are those states that bring us freedom and, and awakening. And the five hindrances is the first of the five areas to look at for these purposes. And the five hindrances have to do with that which keeps us in the dark or keeps us hindered or keeps us bound. The counterpoint in some, uh, in some discussions of this um, is the fourth exercise in this section, which is the exercise on the seven factors of awakening. The five five hindrances are described as that which um, darkens the mind, covers up the mind, closes the mind, contracts the mind. 
And the seven factors of awakening is that which opens the mind, expands the mind, uh, brings the mind to light, enlightens the mind. And so these two are kind of, in a sense, uh, counterpoints to each other. Um, the five hindrances, uh, another simile, uh, different than the ones I told last week, is that of um, gold. Gold, which has impurities in it, uh, is supposed to be, I don't know, I've never worked with gold, but it's supposed to be um, brittle. Um, it doesn't have much luster or brightness. It's kind of dull, perhaps. It breaks easily. Um, but if you kind of uh, work the gold, uh, beat it for a while, and kind of, I don't know how you do it, melt it, I don't know, and bring out the impurities, then um, pure gold uh, is... Uh, has a bright shine to it. It's bright. It's luminous. It's uh, it's uh, can be worked. It's malleable. It doesn't break so easily. Um, and so the analogy is the same thing with the mind. The mind that has the hindrances in them is brittle. It breaks easily. It's um, it uh, you can't work it very well. It's not very workable. Um, but if you if you can kind of work the mind, train the mind, so the hindrances no longer dominate the mind then the mind becomes bright, it becomes soft, and it becomes workable, malleable. You can, you can work with it. You can shape it. And that's very important because for the deeper work of, of mindfulness practice, you want to have a mind which is starting to get soft and malleable and, and workable. You can actually work the mind. It's not just simply a mind that's been trained, but it's a mind that has been trained so that it can do a certain kind of work. It can look more deeply in our experience. It can hold, the mind can be held steady and clear and soft as we look deeply into what our experience is. The hindrances make it very difficult to do that. If you're caught up in anything, the mind is not going to see very clearly. So we have to find some way for the mind not to be caught up in itself, caught up in its concerns, caught up in its things it's angry about, caught up in things that it wants a lot. Uh, um, and so, the hindrances are a lot to do about where the mind gets caught. So there's five hindrances, five places the mind gets caught. So, and there's so the first one is called sensual desire. Sometimes we expand it to mean all desire because desire can be kind of like a black hole. And um, uh, ill will is the second one. And then it's sloth and torpor for the third, restlessness and anxiety or remorse for the fourth, and doubt for the fifth. And these can be understood as manifestation of what's called the three poisons. And Buddhism has a lot of lists, as you know. And if you want to be a Buddhist, you have to deal with that. (laughs) And there's various ways of dealing with it. You could ignore it. But um, so, um, but there's a lot of lists about things like the defilements, the poisons, the torments, the toxins, the uh, hindrances. Kind of strong words, and it's uh, part of the reason why there's these different lists is that. Um, if we're kind of looking for the ultimate in mental health, spiritual health, it helps if you understand what the illness are. are. If, um, if you go to medical school, 
and all you learn is all the wonderful qualities of what a healthy person is like, that'd be great, wouldn't it? It's all you studied. You know, everybody left smiling. That's great, isn't it nice? But then a sick person came to see you, and you didn't have a clue. What's what's that about? You know, it's not a very good medical training, I think. So you want to get the, you know, and med- medical students get a lot of lists, a lot of lists, right? More than more than the Buddhists have. Yeah, you see, we're, we're kind of light on lists. <laughs> and uh, so, um, uh, but anyway, we have these lists of things. So you need to really get to know these. And it's not meant that Buddhists are dour or kind of, you know, party poopers, because we talk about these things. Uh, any any more than doctors are party poopers, right? It's just that they're expected to, you're expected to know that if you want to be, you know, find your way to health. So they have these strong words. And uh, the corruptions. And uh, things like that. So this is, this is one of them, the hindrances. So the, there's a, uh, the three poisons are uh, kind of at the root of it all. They're called, also called the roots. The roots for unskillful, unhelpful, unhealthy behavior. And those three roots are greed, hate, and delusion. And it's said that those, you know, in America or somewhere like that, we say in English, love makes the world go round. Um, the Buddhists don't say that the three poisons make the world go around, but they say that um, uh, it makes the cycles of our suffering spin around. It's the fuel for the cycles of how we suffer. It's greed, hate, and delusion. And the five hindrances are manifestations of these three hindrances, of these three poisons. So, uh, desire, sensual desire, the first hindrance, is a manifestation of greed. Uh, ill will is a manifestation of hate. And the last three hindrances are said to be manifestations of delusion. Isn't that interesting? That sloth and torpor and restlessness and remorse and doubt are all manifestations of delusion. So what is it about sloth and torpor? Sloth and torpor is not just ordinary tiredness. It has to do with some way in which we're relating to our experience. Some people say it as, you see, the strategy of dealing with things that are difficult to deal with. We get tired, we shut down, we get tired, we get resistant, we get lethargic, um, you know. And, um, or we get restless and anxious or something. We don't understand what's going on, and so that not understanding can lead to uh, these manifestations. Um, so let me read you again uh, this section on the five hindrances. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating dhammas as dhammas? Here, a monk abides contemplating dhammas, dharmas, as dharmas, in terms of the five hindrances. And how do they do this? If there is sensual desire in him, a bhikkhu understands there is sensual desire in me. Or there being no sensual desire in her, she understands there is no sensual desire in me. And he also understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire and how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire and how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. And then it goes through the same thing, repeats the same things with ill will, sloth, torpor, restlessness and remorse and doubt. So the first of it is simply if there is sensual desire, the person knows there is sensual desire here. 
It's part of this non-judgmental, clear, simple recognition. This is what's happening now. Oh, there's desire. You see an attractive person, and there's lust. So you know, you, you know that you, that's sensual desire. It's a form of sensual desire. Or you see a really beautiful sweater on someone, and you want that sweater. That's sensual desire. Or you start fantasizing about having a great vacation, and what, what great it's going to be. That's sensual. That's manifestation of sensual desire. Or you're sitting here meditating and you really would like to have a pleasant breath. You really would like to have a really nice, pleasant breath. That's sensual desire, wanting. That wanting that kind of nice, pleasant uh, kind of breathing. Wanting comfort. And so the mind can get pulled into that world. And so it's very important when that arises to recognize this is what's happening now. It's very important here to see that the text does not say when there's sensual desire, recognize your sensual desire, get yourself really stoked up, and start being really critical and judgmental. And take it as a personal fault. Go find your confessor and confess. Um, or run and hide. It doesn't say you know, that you're supposed to do anything about it. It just says, recognize that it's there. There's a lot of freedom that can come with a very simple recognition of what's there. Now, that's very basic to mindfulness practice. In addition, the text tells us that um, if there is no sensual desire, one is supposed to understand there is no sensual desire present. And this sometimes is missed in mindfulness practice because we tend to focus a lot on paying attention to what is happening. But the absence of something is not something, right? Right? You don't pay, you know, how do you pay, you know, where is it? But uh, this text talks about notice when something is not there. And this is particularly useful if you've had a long bout of dealing with something. Like, if you, you know, I've been, you know, well, longer than I care to tell you, you know, involved in some of these hindrances, caught up in the thoughts and ideas and feelings about them. So, you know, sometimes I, you know, I want them, you know, just to kind of unpleasant to have them come, come over and over again, kind of take over my mind. And say, no, enough of that, please, you know, be, you know please. It goes day after day. Um, especially on retreat, it can happen. We don't have anything better to do. <laughs> Seemingly. And, um, but then suddenly, you know, you find that it's gone. Either you've, you've learned to work with it so that it no longer arises, or it just, you know, it's past its time. And so then you recognize what it feels like to be free of this particular hindrance. So you feel the mind is more open, more relaxed. You feel the mind is not, feels like Velcro, or you don't feel the compulsion or the pressure to think this way. You don't feel a tightness or the contraction. Uh, you don't feel the way in which the mind is kind of being derailed or pulled away or, or hijacked, kidnapped by these things. And it's great. It feels great. Compare, uh, uh, picking up one of the similes from last week, the Buddha said that when the mind is free of sensual desire, being caught by sensual desire, it's supposed to bring a kind of joy, and the kind of joy and happiness that a person might feel if the person is finally free of debt and has a little extra money left over. Now, some of you know that's really good feeling, right? You're waiting for that day. Um, 
So that kind of kind of lightness that comes. So to recognize what that's like and the absence. And part of the reason for this is that getting a sense, a physical, mental, experiential sense of the absence helps us to appreciate what the state is like, that freedom is like, and the appreciation of something strengthens it. And it helps us to highlight when the hindrance arises. You can see something more clearly if you have something to contrast it with. And if you really know the quality of a mind which is free of a hindrance, the lightness, the clarity, the ease of that kind of mind, then it's a lot easier to notice when you're caught and contracted by a hindrance. People are always caught in a hindrance, probably don't even know there's a different way of living. They're always angry, always seeing the world in a certain way. And other people know that that way, but they don't know it because it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like invisible to them or to us when we're that way. So that's part of, I think, the function of seeing the absence of sensual desire. Then it goes on to say, the person also understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire. That means that you're going along minding your own business, there's no sensual desire going on at all, and then, lo and behold, you find yourself in the grips of sensual desire, desire for comfort or pleasure or whatever, different forms of sensual desire. And the person, the mindfulness then also involves not just simply recognizing what's happening, but being, but also a little bit, I don't know if analytical is the right word because it, maybe it's the wrong connotations, but a little bit, uh, uh, we begin comprehending, understanding the causes and conditions that stimulated the arising of that sensual desire that wasn't there before. So, so there's more than just simply recognizing its presence, but recognizing how it came into be. So you're walking down the road and you go by a storefront and you see in the storefront you know, this beautiful couch. And it's just beautiful, beautiful couch. It looks like it's really comfortable to sit in. And your couch at home is tattered. And it's kind of like the springs are popping up, so it's kind of uncomfortable to sit in. So, wow, it would be really great to have that couch. I could be really relaxed. And at the end of the day, I can come and just kind of sit back and be a couch potato. And it really will enhance my television viewing. <laughs> and, uh, and so this would be great. And, uh, and so the mind starts getting pulled into this world of what's called, what Buddhists will call sensual desire, wanting this fantasy of how great it is to have it. So you see it arising, and then you see the causes and conditions of it arising is, oh, I was walking by the store, and they had this couch there, and it was very pleasant to look at this couch, and my mind started making a fantasy of what it would be like to sit in this couch. And when my mind got caught up in the fantasy of what it's like to be in the couch, my, my mind was hijacked, and I got pulled off into all kinds of directions. Or perhaps you see, oh, prior to showing up to that store, I was actually, actually had a predisposition to think about couches because um, my boyfriend or girlfriend is coming to visit. I haven't seen him or her for weeks. And he or she will think much better of me if I have a good couch. And it's really important for me to impress this person. And so we're kind of like we're kind of like triggered. We're kind of like hair trigger. Kind of the mind's kind of like primed to look for ways to enhance our sense of self, so that we get more 
approval by this wonderful person in our lives. And so it just happens we have this kind of, kind of prime that way. So we're going along and past the storefront. And part of the reason we latch onto the couch is because we have this charge in our mind about finding ways to make ourselves look better to our friend. I just made it up on the spot, the story, right? So maybe it's a bad story. But you're supposed to fill in the stories, you know, from your own life. I just tried to come up with some examples. And uh, so you start understanding some of these causes and conditions. The state of the mind, the state of your concerns, your values, uh, your atta- things you're attached to, that go into feeding and fueling the hijacking of the mind by the hindrance, by sensual desire. So this is where, so some of this can be involved analysis. I'm like thinking about it, reflecting, oh, what happened here? More than just recognizing what is happening, how did this come to happen? Using your intelligence, using your ability to think about it, of reflection, of memory, spending time with it, exploring it. Um, then, um, he also understands how there comes to be the arising of unarisen sensual desire and, and how there comes to be the abandoning of arisen sensual desire. So, the essential desire is gone, and then you understand not only that it's been that it's absent, but you also understand how it is absent, how it was abandoned, how you were able to let go of it, how you're able to become free of it. And this is part of the point of practice: is not to it's become have the mind become free, not caught by things. So here you know how that happened. Um, now, some of you. Uh, Hopefully this is a good uh, comparison or an analogy. Um, I've had the experience sometimes of st- uh, running, jogging, you know, going for, you know, for exercise. And I decide I'm going to start the jogging regime, you know, go running for a little bit every day or something. And I haven't, uh, I'm not in very good shape maybe, and so I start running. And uh, at first, first days or the first 10 minutes or five minutes or sometime, uh, it, sometimes it can feel like um, the body is not cooperating. You know, the mind is, will, is willing, but the body is not. And, you know, so I'm there, and it kind of feels like the body is kind of heavy, like it's manual labor. It's, I pull it along, and it feels kind of kind of like, a little bit like I'm running through mud a little bit, or especially if I'm a little tired. And, the, you know, it's kind of like the body is a drag, right, rather than helping me along. I have to kind of put effort, extra effort to kind of carry me along. And then at some point... Uh, I don't know what happens inside physiologically or, or mentally, but at some point, the body comes along and the body is no longer a resistant or a drag or heavy, no longer sticky, but it's become, it's kind of participating, it's lightened up, it's agreeing to go along, there's no resistance. And, and for a little while, for another two minutes, then, well, I'm, whatever, however long, it feels like, you know, it's there with it, it feels like vitality, joy, it's kind of like feeling lighter, I'm kind of springing off the ground. And it feels like, you know, I've been freed from, not exactly gravity, but freed from this resistance, this heaviness, stickiness of the body. Is that somewhat familiar? So, um, the same thing with the mind. The mind can be sticky, can be weighed down, can be dragging, the Velcro mind. And so, you, you want to apply the mind, you want to exercise the mind, but the mind is kind of muddy, it doesn't want to work, it doesn't want to apply, your, apply itself. 
And I think sometimes when we press it down to the mindfulness practice, it can feel that way. And sometimes it feels like manual labor to pay attention to what's going on, to pay attention to the breath, to pay attention to what's ever happening in the moment. And so, you know, we, we have to keep making the effort and the mind slips off and gets lost again. We make the effort again and it's like the mind is not there. And then at some point, the mind shifts. It lets go, it relaxes, it becomes workable, it participates, it lifts up and it goes along and it becomes easy. There's no more Velcro, no more mud. There's no more heaviness to the mind. To become free of the hindrances is to have that experience of, oh, I'm no longer being weighed down and the mind becomes workable and can be engaged. So how does that happen, that we abandon the hindrance? How does it happen that we can become freer from them? Partly, if you're lucky, uh, if if the mindfulness is strong enough or if the hindrance is mild enough, Sometimes simply recognizing that it's happening is enough. A very clear recognition, oh, I'm caught by sensual desire, is to become uncaught. Just simply that recognition. Sometimes we need more than just recognition. Sometimes um, recognizing it and then being very convinced, very clearly aware that this is not an interesting thing for my mind to be doing. To recognize the that this is not a worthwhile activity. There's much better things for you to be doing than fantasizing about going to Hawaii or having this most wonderful sexual partner or about this wonderful meal you want to have or couches. Uh, Whatever it might be your favorite sensual desire that you get caught up in. And um, that this is not, you realize it's much better things for the mind to do. Now this takes a kind of re-education of the mind. Because some minds, sometimes, are, you know, have been given a free reign for years, decades, to kind of follow whatever its whims are. And you have a sensual desire, you go along with it. If you have a good sense of ill will and hatred of someone, you go along with it. And no one ever told you that you could do something else. And it's your mind, after all, and whatever your mind says is believable, and, you know, just the authority of the mind, the tyranny of the mind. Um, but to re-educate the mind and realize, oh, this is not such a useful place to go. There's much better things to, to do than be caught by this. Just to, to have that deep recognition sometimes can release the grip we have on this activity. Sometimes that's not enough. What else can we do? Further mindfulness into the experience can be very helpful. How do we do a very interesting way of doing more mindfulness of a hindrance like sensual desire is to decouple the desire or the ill will, the second hindrance, to decouple it from the object of desire. I think almost all the time, if you have a desire, you have a desire for something, for a thing. And so... Part of the reason why we get lost in the sensual desires, we're lost in our thoughts, ideas about that object. What we do with mindfulness practice is you turn the attention 180 degrees around, away from the object, to feel what it's like to be desiring. So your mind is no longer concerned about the object of desire, but is concerned with feeling and sensing what it's like that to be 
in a desiring mode. So you, you've let go of the object. You no longer you're willing willingly let go of what you what you think the thing is you're focusing on, to feel the impulse in your body, the leaning forward, the contraction, the the how you're energized by it, um, uh, you know all the different kind of manifestations that the desire might have. So you turn around and you just feel it very care- carefully, because you're not no, no longer primarily relating to the object. Uh, then sometimes it just uh, you know. It wanes, it, it, uh, it weakens that desire. But also, as you feel the desiring, you discover all kinds of inter- interesting things about yourself. You get to understand something about the origins of that desire. What is it coming from? What's its genesis? Where's it, what's it giving birth to it? Sometimes, uh, I like very much the idea that um, in English we have the word wanting, which is kind of similar to desire. But wanting also has the implication of like a, so- a soup which is wanting salt, it's lacking. So, so the idea of wanting is something it implies sometimes that something is wanting, it's missing something. And um, and sometimes sensual desire is an attempt to try to fill a hole that we have, some sense of lack or void. If you're lonely, or if you're sad, or if you're... you're um, depressed or discouraged or, you know, alienated or something, sometimes we kind of reach out for some sensual pleasure, sensual gratification, in order to somehow fill that hole with pleasure. I think many times that's the case with people who are addicted to things. They're looking for sensual pleasure as a way to fill certain kinds of holes. So by turning around and feeling the desiring, you might also feel a little bit more the origin of it. And it's much more useful to sit at the origin than it is to sit at the desire itself, to sit with the loneliness. Otherwise, if you don't sit with the loneliness, the loneliness will manifest in some other way, even if you can settle the desire. So sometimes, turning back, you can see deeper what's going on. Um, Now, if the desire can't be let go of so easily, so sometimes you just let go of it. You see it, this is not useful, you decide, oh, I think I'll stop doing that activity. I don't need to do that anymore. Or you let it be. Some people say it's more profound to let be than to let go. But in either case, letting be means you don't pick it up. You just don't get involved in it and it kind of fades away with time. But sometimes it's not so easy to let go of sensual desire. And as I said in my story earlier, I spent days caught up in certain sensual desires on retreat. Um, where there's no distractions to interrupt me from it, except for the meals. And, uh, and I've been caught by it for a long time. And so, um, so Buddhism then sometimes offers what's called antidotes. So um, to bring up things which kind of, um, uh, well, antidotes, which kind of negate or, or um, balance out or neutralize the thing. Some of them are unpleasant to do. Like, for example, with sensual desire, you try to think about um, the unpleasant aspect of the object of desire. So, like, if you—it's like if, like if you're caught in desire for a person, sense, you know, lust for a person, and you just can't let go of it. Um, uh, think about their intestines, <laughs> or you know, their 
you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, for example. <laughs> what? Oh, their sense of humor. That does it? Oh. Um, who do you know? <laughs> So thinking about the unpleasant aspect of the person, um, and um, at this uh, place, uh, this little retreat I was helping teach last week, Jack Cornfield was doing a uh, presentation on Abhidharma. And at some point he had everybody in the room um, uh, bare their teeth. And then everybody, look, around, look at everybody else, look at everybody else's teeth. And uh, you look at people differently that way. <laughs> Look at bones. So, uh, so you kind of, kind of reformulate what you're looking at, and um, sometimes that's very helpful if you don't want to be kind of caught by this sensual desire. It's painful sometimes to be caught to, to endlessly with some kind of desire. You, you kind of imagine that we look at look at the unpleasant aspect of that experience. Uh, it said another antidote is concentration practice. So you just kind of of, uh, find your breath or find some object of concentration and just get really concentrated so that the, the food of the mind isn't going anymore to the desire but is it's just going to um, into getting concentrated and then with time the desire will, will fade away. Um, So there's many ways of working with uh, these hindrances when they arise. Uh, and a lot of what uh, I think a good mindfulness student is supposed to do is to become wise about the hindrances and develop a wide repertoire of ways of working with them. So in some way or other, to learn to overcome their hindering quality. Now one of the very important points that you made here, which I made last week, is we don't want to be at war with the so-called hindrances. We don't want to be... Um, and some, I know some American teachers prefer not to use the word hindrances because it has this connotation that it's judgmental. These are bad and you shouldn't have these things. Sensual desire is not considered bad or wrong or evil or whatever it might be. But it's the hindering quality of sensual desire we want to overcome. Not necessarily sensual desire. If your sensual desire doesn't hinder or close down or obscure your, your mindfulness, it doesn't hijack you, then there's no problem with having sensual desire. But it's the hindering quality we're trying to overcome. So we're not at war with the particular hindrances. We're, we're rather trying to overcome this force of being caught by them. Then the last of the exercises here is the person becomes aware of... Um, how there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. How there comes to be the future non-arising of abandoned sensual desire. You've let go of sensual desire and you know how it is that this is not going to arise again. Isn't that great? How do you know that? (laughs) Um, One of the ways you know it doesn't arise, arise again is if you're very confident in your powers of mindfulness and your skills of working with this, essential desire might arise, but you're not going to get caught by it. But I think more profoundly what it's saying here 
And this is pointing to the um, to the really transformative aspect aspect of Buddhist practice. Is that as we get more spiritually mature, as we get into the stages of enlightenment, stages of liberation, there is an inner transformation of the psyche, where forces that are present before are eradicated, are emptied, are finished, and they no longer arise. And at um, at certain point of practice. The, the tendency, the impulse for sensual desire and to ill will is abated, is weakened. They still might arise, but there's not much power behind them. At, um, and at a further stage of enlightenment, there is uh, the eradication and elimination, the ending of sensual desire and of ill will. And the claim in Buddhist tradition is that with enough enlightenment, you will have no more sensual desire and no more ill will. Most people don't mind the ill will part, losing that. Most people are somewhat unsure about, do you really want to lose the sensual desire? Desire for sensual pleasure? What's that about? But that's what they say. So when you get up to that point where you can see that this is possible for you to once and for all abandon, let go of sensual desire and ill will so it will never appear again. You'll have to kind of really do some deep soul searching. Say, do I really want to do this? I don't know. But well short of that, the mindfulness practice uh, will offer you a lot of benefits. <laughs> will help a lot and uh, help you experience a lot of freedom in your life. And once you start uh, learning to working with, the, working with the five hindrances, and so they're no longer grab the mind, hijacking the mind, then the mind can be applied. And the mind that gets really applied in a consistent way is a mind that starts developing the seven factors of awakening. So... We're still a few weeks away before we talk about the seven factors of awakening. We have two more uh, paragraphs. Um, we're finished with the hindrances now, now that we've taken care of those. And they hopefully never arise again. And... Um, no, I, I was finished. I was, I was ready to move on, you know, not, not now, but next week. I mean, the, um, and I could talk more about them, but what would you like? Would you like me to kind of spend more time on the, another week on the hindrances and really kind of, you know, or would you, you know, kind of go through them carefully each one and spend more time in, like on the others, or are you ready to go on to your sense of self? Attachment to self. I like to go on, I think. And uh, there's a lot of, almost every Vipassana book has whole sections on the hindrances and how to work with each one. And so, I mean, I appreciate your question. It's very important. And um, maybe when I finish this series, we can spend, um, maybe it'd be interesting to spend one day on each one since they're so key to the practice. So next week, the, the sense of uh, self and how that, the sense, how the sense of self, or attachment to self, sense of self, 
uh, is one of the one of the forces that obscures the mind, keeps it in bondage, keeps it in suffering. So stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>